Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, if you will. Galatians 5. We'll look at verses 16 to 26, the end of the chapter. We all face conflict in life. Sometimes it's confined to friendly competition, like the Final Four basketball tournament this weekend. That's conflict, but it's fun. But when the stakes are high, competition often turns to conflict. That's been the result of the election in November. Conflict that's tearing our country apart. And some conflicts necessitate a life and death struggle, like the struggle against terrorism that we face these days. We're all familiar with many levels of conflict. But our text this morning speaks of an intense inner conflict, which has the greatest of eternal consequences. Many seem to be unaware of this conflict, or at least they ignore it. But here God gives us instruction that we might prevail in this most costly struggle. Let me read it. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other there are two great truths that you need to learn from this text the first one is simply this your flesh competes with God's spirit. Your flesh competes with God's spirit. Here there are two sides of this conflict. So let's identify, talk about each side for a moment. First, the spirit mentioned here is God's Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that after his death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father, he would pour out his spirit on his disciples. And on the day of Pentecost, that new reality began. Those who believe in Jesus receive and are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. He now imparts to us that eternal resurrection life of Jesus. So verses 22 and 23 describe the fruit which the Holy Spirit produces in us. On the one hand, it's just one fruit the love of Jesus, 
worked in and through us, enabling us to love God and to love one another. But at the same time, this fruit is multifaceted. So as like light through a prism, it can be broken down into a lot of elements. There's love that gives oneself away. There's joy that delights in the Lord for who he is. There's peace that rests and trusts in God's wisdom and power. There's patience that forgives and continues to hope. There's kindness that delights to see others doing well. There's goodness, which is sincere and true, not hypocritical. There's faithfulness, which is always dependable and always wholehearted. There's gentleness, which is humble self-forgetfulness, not thinking less of, your, of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And self-control, which does what is right, not what is easy or expedient. Every true believer desires this fruit of the Spirit to be produced in us. But our flesh competes with God's Spirit. And so we have this other factor here. The flesh now is a bit harder to define. The Greek word sarx, which is translated flesh or sinful nature, has many layers of meaning. Sometimes it means literal flesh, like muscle tissue or something. Sometimes it means our physical body. Sometimes it means humanity in general, like one flesh. Or, or, in those, or, or the or natural human sphere, as in living in the flesh. In all those cases, flesh is part of God's creation, and there's nothing prejudicial or evil implied by the word flesh. But then sometimes flesh suggests a natural, earthly, transitory self which, from which we humans think we can derive ultimate meaning instead of relying on the eternal giver of life. Such self-delusion is sin. It abandons our dependence upon, upon the Creator in favor of an autonomous existence which presumes we can use his creation to make for ourselves a better life without him. I find Charles Kosar's explanation of the flesh to be helpful. He says, to translate sarks as lower nature or sinful nature, or by, or, or by the way, the very ambiguous term, human nature, it's a bit misleading, as if Paul were implying that each individual is divided into two parts, two natures, a higher or spiritual side and a lower or fleshly side, which vie for control. But the spirit and the flesh in this context are not two components of human nature, but two realities on which individuals can base their existence, two directions toward which we can move. They can live according to their own flesh or according to the Spirit of God. To focus on one is death, to focus on the other is life and peace. He's not saying that material things are inherently evil, 
Nor is he implying that human feelings or physical desires are themselves to be avoided or suppressed. What makes the flesh so destructive is that it can become the norm by which people live their lives. This world, with its measures of success and its rewards for hard work, absorbs all of their interest and demands, all of their full attention. There's no openness to God's activity, to the presence of the Spirit, to the life of the new age that Jesus had, has initiated. The sum of all things consists of what can be seen and handled and touched or bought. So in this context, we might say that the flesh is simply the natural way. We depend on what we can understand and control. We are driven by what we see and what desires we feel. We are confident in our own wisdom and in our own power. And we are focused on ourselves in this present world even as we pursue spiritual things. It's all about us. But because sin taints us and taints everything having to do with this world, our efforts do not turn out well. The results are not good. So in verses 19 to 21, the apostle lists the works of the flesh, the effects which our natural human efforts produce. There seem to be four categories of these works. First of all, there's sexual sin, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Things common in the Greco-Roman world and common today. And then there's sins associated with false religion, idolatry, and witchcraft. Things which in some form are still common everywhere humans live. And then there's sins which are the elements of conflicts. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions. Things common in all of our relationships. Unfortunately, things that we sometimes baptize in the church and and make it seem like these are great theological uh, uh, assets to be contentious and filled with strife and ambition. No, they're not. Those are works of the flesh. And then fourthly, sins consisting of substance abuse, drunkenness and orgies. Not sex orgies, drinking parties. Things just as common in our day as they were in Paul's day. And lest we think, take these things lightly, they are followed by a warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. All these things are still common because mankind persists in living according to our flesh, contrary to the spirit of God. Because of this great conflict between the work of the Holy Spirit and the works of our flesh, verse 17 says, you cannot do what you want. Now, there are two different ways in which that's true. First, the fact is, you cannot just do what you please. For what we naturally desire 
will not be the best course of action. For, for, for what is it that we naturally desire? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things. But we live in a world where doing what you please is considered a basic human right. I can do whatever I please. It's my right. God says giving in to doing what you please is deadly. You can't just do what you please. And then second, you cannot do what you want, says something more. The point is that even when you desire to do what is right, you will not be successful. When your efforts are focused on your confidence in the flesh, you will not produce the same desirable fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. This is what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 7 when he says, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. So I find this law at work when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that works within my members. What a wretched man that I am. Our flesh contends with God's spirit so that we cannot, even when we want to, produce what the Spirit produces by following our own sinful flesh. As John Stott wrote, this is the Christian conflict. Fierce, bitter, and unremitting. Moreover, it is a conflict in which by himself the Christian simply cannot be victorious. So what do we do? Well, that brings us to our second point. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the flesh. You know, if you find out you have cancer, but then the doctor quickly tells you, ah, but there's a cure, that's a happy day. Until you hear that the cure might kill you. So here at the very beginning, before the problem is even unpacked, the Lord gives us reason for great hope. Walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the flesh. The second point's right out of verse 16 there. But then at the end of this passage in verses 24 and 25, the Lord unpacks what that means, prescribing two really radical, costly treatments. So let's discuss those true two treatments. First, the negative one. Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Like I said, the cure might kill you. Note that this is a different truth from what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. In other words, when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified in my place, so that means that my status is that I'm crucified. He died for my sin. That means my sins are gone. What is said of him can be it's true, of, it's true of me because he acted in my place. But verse 24 doesn't say I'm crucified with Christ. It says we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's something different. That's something we are called to do if we belong to Christ. It is not a death which is attributed to us because Christ did it. 
It is a death which we deliberately bring upon our own flesh. John Stott explains it pretty well. To quote him, he says, to take up the cross was our Lord's vivid figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Christ is to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. Now, Paul takes that metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. This is Paul's graphic description of repentance of turning our back on the old life with its selfishness and sin, repudiating it finally and utterly. Romans 8, we have a similar intense statement. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This explains the hyperbole of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here in Galatians, the apostle is speaking about repentance, that act of putting away sin and self in order to come and believe in, in Jesus. Such repentance has already been a part of every Christian's conversion. That's how we come to the Lord. We repent and believe. But we dare not now change our attitude towards sin. Unrepent, if you will. There's no place for renewed tolerance of the works of the flesh. There's no place for beginning to trust ourselves again rather than Christ. There's no place for growing soft toward our radical break with sin. When we come to Jesus, when we came to Jesus, we made a break with the desires of the flesh. Don't renegotiate it now. Philip Ryken describes it quite vividly. He says, the trouble is that our sinful nature has a way of trying to climb back down from the cross. When it does, it's able to make a remarkably speedy delivery, uh, recovery, partly because we have a way of helping it. We're sometimes tempted to remove the nails to help our old sinful nature down from the cross and nurture it back to, nurse it back to health. That's why we struggle with so-called besetting sins, sins that we commit so often that they've just become bad habits. This has to stop. Do not administer first aid to your flesh. Instead, treat it the way Jesus was treated at Calvary. Mortify your sinful nature. Put it to death. That's the negative part of the cure. Then verse 25 gives us a positive element of God's solution to this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And the positive element is this. If we live by the spirit, then let us also keep in step with the spirit. 
or as one Bible translation suggests, if the Spirit is the source of our life, let the Spirit direct the course of our life. When we became a Christian, we received the Holy Spirit. He gave us eternal resurrection life in Jesus. That was true of the Galatian believers too. But then they, got, they lost the way. They began to think that they could live the Christian life by their efforts to keep the law rather than by trusting the power of God's spirit. And so the apostle addressed their on-again, off-again life in the spirit, asking, having begun by the spirit, are you now being made perfected by your flesh? And now in verse 26, he says it another way. Keep in step with the spirit. Keep in step with the spirit. Actually, Paul uses a military term here, which means to step by, keep in step by staying in formation. Staying in formation. If you've ever been in the military, you understand what this means. It seems like that when you go into the military, that you spend weeks marching everywhere in formation. And when you do, all that matters is that you stay in place and stay in step. You don't need to worry about where you're going, stay in formation. You don't have to worry about the pace, whatever it is, stay in formation. As you know, I spent a lot of years flying military fighters, which regularly fly in formation. And it was the same drill as the guys marching in the army. Stay in formation. Trust your leader. Don't second guess what he's doing. Stay in formation. In fact, when we were learning to fly formation, which frankly is one of the most difficult things in learning to fly. Like I noticed some light airplanes were trying to mess around yesterday trying to do that and they crashed. I wasn't even surprised. When we learned to fly formation, one of my instructors once, once said this, if your leader flies into a mountain, when they come to, revive, to, re, to re, re, retrieve your remains, there had better be another hole exactly three feet out and three feet down from your leader. Another hole right in formation with the leader. Dear people, we spend so much time second-guessing the Lord. Oh, we believe the Spirit gives eternal life. We know he speaks to us in his word, and we've even known his presence, his sweet presence on occasion. We're just not content to trust him enough to stay in step with him. We want to know what he's doing with us. We want to have a say. We want veto power. No. No. He is God and you're not. Keep in step. Walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful flesh. This is a difficult text 
because it's talking about our sanctification, not our justification. You see, in justification, our faith is passive. We just believe the gospel promise. And we're made right with God. We don't do a thing. We just believe. Receive. But in sanctification, our faith is not passive. It's active. Oh, it's still faith. We don't add one thing to our standing before God. It's all the work of Jesus. But we are called to engage the conflict. We are challenged to trust the Lord enough to act. Specifically, we are told we must actively mortify our flesh and actively keep in step with the Spirit. And folks, this is the most challenging conflict you will ever face, and it will not go away as long as you draw another breath on this earth. It's difficult because to win this battle, we must die to ourselves. God help us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you've made these truths really crystal clear in lots of places in your word. And yet, no matter how many times we've read them, we still have not mastered this. Oh, Father, you know I've studied this, and I've studied this, and I've tried to understand it in every detail, but I've not mastered it. For our flesh is rebellious and strong. And we so easily excuse ourselves for getting out of step with your spirit doing our own thing for a while. Thinking, of course, we can always come back and you'll be merciful. Teach us, Lord, not just how to explain this. Teach us to live it. We freely admit we can't do it. Our old flesh is not able to do what you call us to do. We can only do it by your spirit. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.